Looking at a little collection of parables in Matthew chapter 13. So we come this morning to uh, page 818, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 24. If we've not met, my name's Paul. I'm the minister here. Great joy to be able to welcome you. Lots of visitors in town as ever over the summer. Do stick around, spend time with us, I hope, at the end of our time together. We'll serve tea and coffee at the front and at the back, and we'd love to spend some time together. But I'm going to pray and ask for God's help as we turn to his word. Almighty God, we want to thank you that you are a speaking God and that you speak to us by your spirit through these ancient words today about the most pressing and ultimate realities in the universe. We want to pray for your help that we might hear and understand what you're saying, that we might be able to reflect on it together in the time that we have and that your truth might penetrate our, our minds and hearts in such a way that our thinking and our affections and our living are shaped by you and reality. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So you'll see the title there. We're starting at verse 24, the parable of the weeds. And then if you glance over to the right-hand side of the page, you'll see that at verse 36, Jesus then explains the parable that, he's going to, uh, that we're looking at this morning. So I'm going to read the parable and then the explanation as well. So starting at verse 24, Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed words, uh, weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then on to verse 36. And Jesus left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. I hope you want to keep that open in front of you. There's also an outline of the sermon on the back of the, the notice sheet that was inside your service sheet. Um, the, the general 
question of the parable is one that we all wrestle with personally. I'm sure one that our friends ask us regularly. Um, a little while ago, one of the children in our Sunday school put it like this to me. If God hates evil so much, why doesn't he stop it? Uh, I once spent a, a week with the church in a deprived part of East London. They were meant to be organizing events for us to speak at, but they didn't organize too many. So for lots of our team, we just spent the week knocking on doors and trying to chat to people in the community. And uh, after we'd said hi, introduced ourselves, we asked everybody, if you had one question that you could ask God, what would your question be? And as we debriefed at the end of day one, we discovered, without exception actually, that every single door that we'd knocked on, dozens and dozens of them, as we'd asked people what their one question for God would be, it had been a variant of this. Why does God not stop the pain? Uh, that is our general theme, but here in Matthew 13, it has a particular spin to it. Jesus has been uh, spending the last few chapters demonstrating the crowds through his dynamic power on the one hand and his divine wisdom on the other, that in his own person, the kingdom of heaven has arrived on earth, that it is growing. But some of his disciples were a little bit confused. They were expecting the arrival of God's kingdom to be a little bit more dramatic than it had been in the first century. They loved Jesus' miracles. They marveled at his teaching. But what they really wanted to happen was a final victory over good and evil, uh, uh, for good over evil, I should say, and it hadn't happened yet. So where was the defeat of God's enemies who'd been oppressing God's people for centuries? Why hadn't the Romans been sent packing? Why hadn't Israel been established as a global superpower? If Jesus really is this king that he's claiming to be, why do the wicked still prosper? And it is to answer those questions that Jesus tells the parable of the weeds. Um, Matthew 13, if you don't know, is the third of five big teaching blocks in Matthew. It's made up of eight parables. This is number two. So let me read again from verse 24. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seed among the wheat. Uh, so wheat, I'm sorry, I'm not reading very clearly today, am I? I do apologize for that. I'm going on holiday tomorrow, so hopefully by the time that I come back, I'll be able to read once again. While his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. Servants of the house came to him and said to him, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your fields? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? He said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. So a pretty simple tale, isn't it, of in, uh, agricultural espionage? It, it happened enough in the first century that the Romans had a law against it. And the books think that the weeds in question, if you're a farmer, you might guess this, are bearded darnel. This is a, a poisonous weed that looks almost identical to wheat until it sprouts ears. But by then, the, the, wheat, the roots are so entwined that it's impossible to dig up the weeds without harming the wheat as well, hence the story. 
And Jesus uses that pretty routine event to teach us some two big lessons about his kingdom. You'll see we've put them on the sheet. First, expect a delay before perfection comes. Throughout the parable, Jesus is sure that harvest is coming. There is a day when Jesus is going to return. He's going to get rid of all of the bad stuff. But that day is not yet. We're to expect a delay. Uh, lots of writers say that Jesus is talking about the church so that um, we should expect the church itself to be a permanent blend of good and evil, sacred and secular. There may be some truth in that. The saying goes, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join. You'll only ruin it. But in verse 38, Jesus tells us that the field represents the world rather than the church. You'll see that. It means that when Jesus is talking about the kingdom here, he's not talking about his saving rule over his people in particular, as he often is in the Gospels. This time he's talking about his sovereign rule over the whole world. And he's saying that until he returns, we should expect a world in which good and evil sit side by side with one another. Uh, the servants in the parable are unhappy with that. They don't like the weeds, understandably so. They want to do something now to get rid of them. The owner says, no, let both grow together until the harvest. Uh, you may have seen recently the Royal Horticultural Society have decided that we've all been too harsh on weeds for far too long and that weeds deserve a rebrand. They want us to call them hero plants instead or garden friends. Uh, you might do that in your garden if you want to. In the parable, at least, the weeds are not heroes. I hope we can agree on that. They are villains. They choke the life out of the crop that the farmer needs to be able to feed his family and earn a living. So the, the servants are, are right to want to be rid of them. We're right to want to long for a world that is free from evil. God himself tells us that he hates evil. When he tells us to pray, your kingdom come, as we just did, at least in part, we're asking him to hasten the day when evil is no more. So the issue here is not with the servant's desire, but with their timing. They want it to happen now. And maybe, too, it's the desire to do the work themselves. Do you want us to go and gather them, they say. And the owner says, no, wait until the harvest. I'll tell the reapers to do it. It's not now, and maybe it's not your job. The lesson for us is sobering, that we need to be patient, and that we need to trust the Lord to deal with evil in his way and in his timing, rather than ours. Notice, too, the other question that they ask in verse 27. Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? How, then, does it have weeds? It's a question about the source of evil. There's a huge amount I would love Jesus to have said by way of explanation in response. Philosophers and theologians have written tomes on this question for centuries. We'd love a definitive summary from Jesus. He gives us just five words. An enemy has done this. Uh, we're not told where the enemy comes from here. 
We're not told why or how he became an enemy. We're not told why his activity is tolerated. We're just told that he's an enemy, that he's real, he's active, and that his work is in opposition to the master's. Verse 25 specifically calls him his enemy. I think it's one of the most helpful ways to think about God's enemy, the devil today. Fundamentally one who is opposed to Jesus. His goal to, to rot up, to do whatever he can to rot up Jesus and his kingdom. In the parable of the sower we read last week, that involved snatching the seed of Jesus' word away from the path. Here it means doing what he can to, to strangle the life out of the sons of the kingdom, as they're called. It's because he's anti-Christ. He's anti-Christ's people. So those five words don't tell us everything we might want to know about the origin of evil. But you see how they, they do vindicate the honor of God? Uh, God is a God whose works are always perfect. His hands are never dirty with evil. It's the enemy who's done this. And so they put the blame for the mess in our world in the right place. There are all sorts of people in Matthew in the world today who stand in opposition to Jesus and his kingdom. Behind all of them stands the evil one. And God has decreed for his own good purposes that it's not yet time for the evil one's weeds to be gathered and burnt up. So we're to expect a delay before perfection comes. I put a couple of implications on the sheet as well as being patient. We need to be realistic. Which is to say that if the sovereign purpose of God is to allow good and evil to sit side by side in our world, then we need to be realistic about the limitations of our own good efforts to make this world a better place. Um, this is almost ancient history now, but some of you will remember when um, Clement Attlee was uh, introducing the Labour Party's general election manifesto back in 1951, I think it was. He said this to Labour Party members, uh, remember that we are a great crusading body armed with a fervent spirit for the reign of righteousness on earth. He said, let us go forward in the spirit of William Blake. I will not cease from mental strife, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. Uh, using such overtly religious language seems impossible in, in British politics today, doesn't it? It was standard for decades, actually, until New Labour came to power in 1997. Peter Mandelson famously said, we do not do God. And there ended the time. But still today, find politicians of, of every stripe actually making similar pledges, but in more humanistic language. We're, this is the sort of society we're going to create when we win power. We're going to uh, achieve justice and equality and prosperity. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Prince William, I'm going to end homelessness. And honestly, well done to all of them for trying. Would that more did. But we're being reminded that no political ideology, no amount of human effort will ever build the new Jerusalem here. We can make some difference for some people, some of the time. But the weeds will stay until the harvest. 
the theological equivalent to the prosperity gospel, isn't it? The, the lie that says if only you've got enough faith in God, he'll make you physically healthy, materially wealthy, personally happy. But again, the, the weeds are here to stay until Jesus returns. And if we spend enough time living among stinging nettles, sooner or later, we will be stung. So we need to be realistic. But at the same time, and I wonder if this even drives closer to the heart of what Jesus is saying, we need to be confident, and we need to be confident about Jesus in particular. Um, in the, the years that, that followed Jesus' teaching of this parable, his disciples witnessed and experienced all manner of evil. First, their, their leader, their friend Jesus, was ripped from them and executed um, soon after Pentecost as they started working for Jesus in the world. They began to face huge opposition. Stephen was martyred for his faith. The church was scattered. Persecution very quickly became a normal way of life for God's people. It caused the love of some to grow cold. They wonder people still, is it credible to believe that Jesus is God's forever king if his people suffer in this way. And we're being reminded that the presence of evil in the world doesn't change the facts. Jesus lived, he died, he rose again. He is Lord of all. He's promised that perfection will come, but not yet. For now, the weeds will remain. We don't need to doubt when we feel their effect personally, when we see their effect in the world around us, everything is happening just as he said. Our place is to trust him, to allow the weeds to remind us that this world as it is now is not our ultimate hope and destination. The weeds should make us want and prompt us to long for the day of Christ's return. So expect a delay before perfection comes. And then more briefly, expect a division when the Son of Man comes. Expect a division when the Son of Man comes. Let me read from verse 30 uh, again. The master said, let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. Uh, one of the intriguing things about the, the parable, I don't know if you noticed this as I read it, the, the idea of delay dominates the story itself. But when Jesus explains it, the focus shifts to division. So verse 37, Jesus answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. This is just our cast list, isn't it? The field is the world, the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the one, the enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the close of the age, the reapers are the angels, we know who's who. The lesson starts in verse 40. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, they'll gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin, all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. 
You'll see it's not behaviors or attitudes that are separated, but people, and they're split into two groups. There is the, the sons of the kingdom. And they're called sons, not because they're male. In the first century, some will know only sons could inherit their father's estate. That view here, wonderfully, of course, in Christ's kingdom, male and female disciples alike are joint heirs of the kingdom and share in their father's likeness. So all male and female disciples, sons of the kingdom. Then on the other hand, there are the sons of the evil one. Does it shock you at first? I, I think it does me still to hear Jesus describing people made personally by him as children of the devil. These are men and women created in the image of God by Jesus and for Jesus. But a few verses earlier, Jesus said, anyone who's not for us, for me, for Jesus, is against me. And he says routinely that there is no third way. There's no kind of in-between place for people who can inhabit some sort of spiritually neutral Switzerland sort of place. We're all children, and if we're not a part of God's family because we've trusted in Jesus and received the salvation, the rescue we've been thinking about all morning, then we're children of his enemy. And it's telling, isn't it? Because when we categorize and differentiate people from one another. We talk about how old we are. We talk about uh, what qualifications we've got. We talk about which country we're from, the color of our skin. We judge each other according to our wealth, our beauty. All through the Gospels, Jesus is unashamed to say that the dividing point, the watershed of humanity, is none of that but him personally. It's because of who he is. He's called here the Son of Man, the one to whom God has given an everlasting kingdom so that people from every nation and background should serve him. And he says the day will come when he sends out his angels and instructs them to remove from his world. And I hope we'll be able to see that this is good news. In verse 41, what he calls all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. And just to define our terms, things that cause sin would be any person or teaching, any culture, any enterprise that leads people down the road of rejecting the wisdom, the rule of Jesus. It could be religious in nature, could be secular. Uh, those who do evil, his other term, are as many as remain on the side of the evil one, those who refuse to come to Jesus and get the rescue that he died to win. And at the harvest, says Jesus, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers will be gathered and thrown into the fiery furnace. And George Whitfield said famously once that any mention of hell or of God's judgment should be carried out with a, a weight on the heart and a tear in the eye. goes without saying that judgment is a, a deeply emotional, a, a very troubling subject for many of us. But might we pause for, for a moment and think how much better our world would be if we could weed out all of its evil today. Imagine for a moment we could um, rid the world, let's just start with racism. 
Isn't it disgusting to you that still today in 2023 in Europe, um, black football players routinely listen to monkey chants from the stands and have bananas thrown at them? It's just one tiny example. There are many more uh, in the police, in employment, and in some of our own hearts too, if we're honest. Wouldn't it be better if the world were free from all racism? about sexism. In Afghanistan right now, anyone over, any girl over primary school age is not allowed to go to school. There's um, 130 million girls around the world who are being denied an education, according to the UN, just because they're girls rather than boys. Again, one example, we find many, many more in business, in sport, in families, even in churches. Wouldn't it be better? if the world was free from sexism? What if you could rid the world of fascism and of war and of murder and of abuse in all of its forms and of greed and of every form of oppression and exploitation, of every act of selfishness and unkindness, of every harsh word? Jesus says, one day they will all be gone and the world for which we all long will be here. So that if our first point told us we need to be patient in the presence of evil, this second tells us that we need not be hopeless because justice and perfection will come one day. And so we come to the destinies themselves. First verse 42, throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, those words aren't a scare tactic. They were invented by the church in the Middle Ages. They speak of a terrifying reality. In the New Testament, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul feels what he describes as great sorrow and unceasing anguish of heart as he thinks about the, the fate of those who are outside of Christ. Still today, every Christian I know recoils a little bit from the, the subject of judgment. But it is real nonetheless, and we don't help ourselves or anyone else if we pretend otherwise. So Jesus speaks of weeping, gnashing of teeth. Uh, weeping denotes distress. We can see that. Gnashing of teeth is, is probably not remorse, like some people think, but more defiance. Um, when the crowds are... Uh, uh, killing Stephen with stoning Stephen in Acts. They gnash their teeth at him. It's this same phrase. So there's no doubt that this is a fate that is worse than death. But we're to note the contrast with the destiny of the children of the kingdom. Verse 43 says, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Uh, language this time comes from Daniel 12 in the Old Testament. We're meant to lift our eyes from the field and all of its evil to the sun and all the glory of the heaven above. In just a few chapters in Matthew, Jesus will give his disciples a sneak preview of his own heavenly glory and he'll be transfigured on a mountain, it says, and we'll be told his face will shine like the sun. So the thought here is that every disciple will one day reflect and somehow share in the glory of Christ himself. What a thought that is. A friend of mine told me of um, 
the time he received news of a close friend being diagnosed with a brain tumor. He said the thought of losing her was so painful it made him cry, but it was the prospect of knowing that he would see her again one day, shining like the sun, that gave him the strength to carry on. And this is the hope that in different ways, every one of God's people needs to sustain us in a life of faith while we feel the effects of the weeds in our lives and in our world. Let me end then with another question that came from someone in our Sunday school. If God is going to rid, get rid of all of the evil one day, why doesn't he hurry up and do it today? Maybe that's your question too. Of course, there are reasons why it would be wonderful if he were to do that. We pray, come Lord Jesus. We look eagerly for his return. But as well as longing for the day, there's a bit of a paradox, I think, as well as longing for the day of his return, the Christian finds themselves thanking God that Jesus hasn't come back yet. I was trying to think of the time that I was first properly confronted by or aware of the presence of evil just out there in the world somewhere. I think for me, um, I'm old, it was in the 1980s when the IRA carried out a string of bombings on the, the mainland. I think that was when I first started to realize that things aren't quite right. And I'm sure that many Christians at that time were praying for Christ to return, praying for Christ to remove all evil from the world. I, for one, am profoundly glad that he delayed, because if he'd come back then, I wouldn't have been ready. Not for me until 1992, when the Lord first had mercy on me. I was numbered among, among the weeds at that time. It made me wonder how many of us here this morning wouldn't have been ready if Christ had returned in 2000 or in 2010. No, for a fact, there are plenty in our church family who wouldn't have been ready if he'd come in 2020. And there are so many, aren't there, in our own town, maybe even here this morning, who still wouldn't be ready if he came back today. So I hope we can see that it is, in fact, very loving of God to delay the day when he sends his angels to gather all those who do evil and to throw them into the furnace. It gives more and more people the chance to come back to him in repentance and faith, to claim Christ's promise of perfect forgiveness and a place in his perfect kingdom, the promise of shining like the sun in the kingdom of God forevermore. It gives us the chance to tell them about the Lord Jesus. But Jesus went to the cross and he experienced the, the burning wrath of his father as he died to open up the opportunity that you and I need never face that anger that we deserve, need never be burnt, but might shine like the sun. All we need to do is to come to him, to receive his forgiveness, to acknowledge him as our king, to trust in him. I want to encourage you to come to him today if you've never done that. Perfection will come. There will be a delay. 
We need to be realistic about that. We can be confident about that. But there will be a division. So why not make sure you're ready for the day when it comes? He who has ears to hear, let them hear. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do thank you and praise you once again that you speak to us with such great clarity about our world, about our own hearts, and about eternity. And we confess that our minds and our beliefs, our attitudes are often shaped by things other than your word as we think of our lives and as we think of the future. And so we pray that by your spirit, you might correct us as we continue to reflect on the things you've said to us this morning and that you might shape our approaches to life, the attitudes of our hearts in the light of everything that we've heard. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Why don't we stand and sing?